One of the things that I was sharing in, you saw in the little video clip, the communion service we had with the team, uh, with all the people who were helping at New Horizon. And uh, one of the things I shared with them was that at the Alpha Conference in the Royal Albert Hall, we had a most superb Pentecostal preacher. He was a wee bit like Ben Quashie, actually, and uh, he, was, he, he had a theme, and his theme was this. He said, stop comparing yourself to other people. And he kept quoting that little phrase, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And I was thinking, Ben Quashy, me, Ben Quashy, me. I have to share a stage with Ben Quashy at New Horizon. And uh, I have to say, there is something really very good about sharing a stage with Ben Quashy, because usually when I go out around churches, I feel like the rabble-rouser, but when Ben Quashy's here, I feel very paced and very measured and very ordinary in comparison to him. So, Ben, thank you for being here. But the, the other reason why I was feeling a little bit inadequate beside an archbishop from the part of Nigeria that Ben is from. I haven't said this to you, Ben, but uh, at a conference that we were at in Kenya uh, a little while ago, we had one of those lovely Anglican processions of loads and loads of bishops in all their robes. And the only thing I can say to you that robes look better than Peter Linus in shorts. <laughs> and we were walking around the cathedral and we were singing a hymn that I had vaguely heard of. And it's one of the favorite hymns in Nigeria. It comes from a Roman Catholic tradition, and we don't have it in many of our hymn books, but I'd like to offer it uh, uh, to, to Jonathan. And uh, it's called Faith of Our Fathers. You know that one? Very popular hymn, Faith of Our Fathers. And there's a verse that we started to sing, and I can't remember the exact words, but it goes something like this in its theme. It says, Lord, in the past, you gave our fathers the privilege of laying down their lives for you. Would you give us, your children, the same privilege? I'm sure Ben could quote it word for word. And I thought, that's a terrible thing to sing. And then I realized that that is actually happening. We have seen in, again in the Bob McAllister uh, program repeated last night, two people at least in that program who laid down their lives, and indeed more were mentioned as martyrs in Congo. And there were more martyrs in the last century than in any century since the Christian church began. So it is a privilege, Ben, to be sharing this platform with you on these evenings. And for those who were hoping for Ben tonight, you might get him tomorrow night if you're lucky. Tonight's theme in terms of unconditional love, his unconditional love for the world, is to do with the church. So it is, in a sense, God's unconditional love 
in his church. And I want you to do something. It's a wee kind of thing that I do. If people could put the lights up for a moment or two, would you all stand up? We're going to have the reading in a moment, but stand up. And I often do this uh, when I go around churches in the Diocese of Down and Dromore. Would this side look in that direction? And this side look in that direction? Okay, you can move, you can move. Africans move and we can move too, right? And I have a kind of little liturgy and it goes something like this. Look at each other. And what you'll discover when you look at each other is that there are old ones there are young ones, there are men, there are women, there are thin ones, but there are no fat ones, right? (laughs) There are tall ones, there are short ones, and I want you to say something like this to yourself, what a motley crew. (laughs) I would never in a million years have chosen this lot, but by the grace of God, When we are born again into His family, we don't choose His family any more than we choose our own family. We're landed with them. We're landed with them. And I hope that as you just look at each other, you kind of see something, something, some little glimpse of the face of Christ in each other and some little glimpse of what it will be like with the multitude that no one can number in the heavenly places. And what I get people to do then is to pray the grace over each other. We usually do that at the end, but you can do it at the beginning or in the middle or any other time. So can we do that together, looking at each other? We often pray with our eyes shut, but looking at each other, let's pray God's blessing as we use the words of the grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. And stay standing. I think the reading will go up on the screen. It's from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Maybe it won't. Maybe it didn't get there. But anyway, I'll read it. Ephesians 5, verse 22. This is a very dangerous passage to read. You all know that, Ephesians 5. Very dangerous because it talks about relationships between husbands and wives. And I have to say that when Mr. and Mrs. came up, it gave me the heebie-jeebies, because they did Mr. and Mrs. on us at New Wine, and we won! But it was the most embarrassing experience in my life, because my wife gave all the trade secrets away, and you're not going to hear about them. Let me read Ephesians 5:22. Wives, Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, if a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Please be seated. Jesus is using marriage as an analogy for the mystery that is the relationship between Christ and His church. And if I might just say in a kind of parenthesis, the reason why Christians believe that marriage should be essentially monogamous, lifelong, and between differentiated species is because that is what declares this particular mystery. Jesus has given Himself to His church. Jesus gives Himself to His church forever, and Jesus gives Himself to His church as His bride. And so we read in this passage words like submission, love, self-giving, forgiveness, faithfulness, beauty, splendor, cherishing. And let's be honest, if I'm honest, maybe the rest of you can be honest if I'm honest, I have quite honestly a love-hate relationship with the church. I have discovered that in churches, the closer you get to the center of the organization, the more unpleasant it can become. And when you're a bishop in a church, you sometimes wish you had presbyteries and things like that when you're a bishop in the church. When you're a bishop in the church, you both get the opportunity to do all the big, encouraging, resplendent kind of things, but you also get the utterly nasty, intractable, impossible situations, and when they come to the bishop, there's nowhere else to go except the Lord Himself. One of the questions I began to ask myself when I read this passage was, what is the church for which Christ gives Himself? Because we define churches in all sorts of ways, and we use the word church in all sorts of ways, and sometimes really in quite unbiblical ways, but because we've done it for so long, we don't even notice we're doing it. So we call our denominations churches. We have the nerve to call the church that I'm in the Church of Ireland because we were the old establishment. We then say, how dare the Catholic Church call itself the Catholic Church while we're calling ourselves the Church of Ireland? 
Other churches define themselves by some particular doctrine, like the Baptist church, a particular doctrine of baptism, or Pentecostal churches, a particular doctrine of the Spirit. Others define themselves by a particular mode of government, like the Presbyterian church or the Congregational church. I told a joke on Sunday in the service, and I think I can tell it again because most of you weren't at the service that I was at, but it's a joke that I greatly enjoy, and it's about the man who arrives at the gates of heaven. And when he arrives at the gates of heaven, Peter says, now there are many rooms in heaven, and I'm going to show you around all the different rooms. And he takes him to the first room, And in the first room, there are a large group of people sitting down and drinking the most extravagant of wines. Do you know, somebody gave me the the bottle of water just as we were singing, water you turn into wine. (laughs) So these people are sitting down drinking very, very expensive wines in heaven. And Peter, showing him around, says to the man, now he said, those are the Methodists. They weren't allowed to drink down there, and now they have the very best of wines. (laughs) Then he took them into the second room, and it was a Sunday. And a group of people were wheeling B and Q trolleys through B and Q, and he said, those are the Presbyterians. They were Sabbatarians, and I say were Sabbatarians. They were Sabbatarians. They were not allowed to do any shopping. They couldn't even have an ice cream on a Sunday, let alone go to B&Q. And then he takes them, takes them into the next room, and there's a group of people, and they're tucking into steaks, like I saw Ben Quashi eat tonight at dinner time. Fabulous big steaks. And it's a Friday. He says, those are the Catholics. They were never allowed to eat meat on a Friday, and now they can eat fabulous steaks. Then he took them into the next room, and there was a group of people yelling and roaring and shouting. He said, those are the Quakers. They had to be silent down there, and now they can yell and roar and shout to their heart's content. And then he took him into the last room, and there were a group of people doing absolutely nothing. He said, those are the Anglicans. There was nothing they weren't allowed to do down there. Do you know that the Bible only uses the word church, it seems to me, and the word church is a very bad translation of the, work that is, the word that is there. The word is ecclesia, uh, and ecclesia is a gathering or a, a group of people called out or called together, an assembly. The brethren knew the right word, and the Presbyterians knew the right word when they called it a meeting house, and the Anglicans called the gathering of the people the first part of their liturgy. We know those kind of words, but we just use that word church. And translators of the Bible use the word church, which comes from probably a word that meant the Lord's house. So it was applied to the building. 
And the Bible only knows two real ways of understanding the word church or the word ecclesia. And the first one is what I would call macro church. And macro church is the whole caboodle. Every single believer in every single place, in every single generation, on earth and in heaven, the whole bang shoot, which you might want to call, for example, the invisible church, the church that we can never entirely see until we are gathered at the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with pure linen, bright and pure. The macro church every single believer in every single place and every single generation. Together, all tribes and peoples and nations and languages. And Jesus Christ, in this passage, is declaring to us that He will present us at the last day as His bride unblemished, and absolutely pure and spotless. I met Maud Kells for the first time today. It was a thrill if you're here, Maud. It was absolutely a joy. And she said, oh, do you recognize me? Well, you couldn't not recognize Maud Kells after the way she has been celebrated for her faith and her courage, uh, not least by the Belfast Telegraph and in her, was it OBE? And it's just wonderful to have Maud here. And uh, she was opening recently uh, a wedding dress festival in the parish of Marilyn. I can't remember how many wedding dresses there were, but there were all sorts of wedding dresses from all sorts of famous people, and it was resplendent, absolutely fabulous exhibition. And I happened to be reading a paper recently with a thing about the Queen coming up to being the longest-serving monarch. And it told me, well, something I didn't know, that Princess Diana's wedding train, I think was at 50 feet or 150 feet, something, a very long wedding train, was the longest wedding train in history. And I thought to myself as I was reading this that really, really, it's nothing in comparison to the wedding train of the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. So what I want to tell you, I had a wee title up there, it hasn't gone up yet, but as I've been talking about it, Jesus has an unconditional love for His church. Jesus will never stop loving His church. And the church that He loves is the church that is the totality of the redeemed, the church in its biggest sense, the church in its grandest sense. But that big picture in the New Testament is then funneled down. That's the way I like to think of it. It's funneled down the reality and the truth 
of the totality of God's church is funneled down and focused in real situations so that we have not just an unconditional love for His church, but we have an unconditional love in His church. At least we're intended to. Never perfectly, but we're intended to. One occasion quite some years ago, I was staying at a, at a hostel in London, a Christian hostel run by the church army, and a man came in who seemed slightly odd, just slightly odd, slightly eccentric, and he had a big badge on his jacket. And the big badge said, I'm a member of the invisible church. And I said to him, I'm fascinated by your badge because I can see you quite clearly. <laughs> so it is absolutely true that there is the invisible church. But in a faith that is incarnational, the invisible church is funneled down in this place and that place. You can see it in the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. You can see it in the letters of Paul, Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Philippi, Colossae, and Galatia, which is the only one that's a region. So that God's unconditional love for His church… He wants to be seen visibly, actually, and really in churches in all sorts of places and all sorts of situations. Otherwise, how would anybody ever know? Have any of you ever done the Willow Creek Network course? It's a fascinating course. It's maybe fallen out of use a little bit, but uh, it's an amazing course because the Willow Creek Network course helps us to discover what is our gifting, what is our style, and what is our passion. And they have discovered that people find the passion bit very hard to get to because usually our passion is clearest when we first know God, when we first become disciples of Jesus Christ, when we feel as though by the grace of God we can take on anything and we can transform the world. And I remember doing the Willow Creek Network course when I was in Cork as a rector. I was rector of Blarney once. That doesn't surprise you. When I was rector of Blarney in Cork, I did the Willow Creek Network course. It was a fascinating experience because uh, you have to get people to reflect back to you. And one person reflecting back to me said, Harold, do you not think your gifts should be used more widely, for example, as a bishop? And it happened. So it works. But the passion that I got to for myself, and a passion has to be reasonably focused, is this. My passion above everything else, 
the thing that will keep me awake thinking about it at night, the thing that will have my heart beating more quickly is when I discover churches where heaven and earth meet. And the way I often describe it going around churches in the Diocese of Down and Dromore is something like this. When people come into church, they have every reason to expect that they're going to experience the fourth dimension. And if people come into church and it's just the same as the world outside, why would they ever bother coming again? And worse than that, if people come into church and they discover that it's like a lot of cardboard cutouts, that we're not even human when we're in church. For ministers, you can see that at the end of services in certain churches. You can see people literally coming to life as they go out and breathe fresh air again, having been two-dimensional. You can see it happen. I remember my son going to a church once, and he said to me, Dad, he said, I worked out the average age of the congregation this morning. And I said, and Kevin, what was it? He said, 165. <laughs> I said, 165? How could it be 165? He said, too many died before I had time to divide. <laughs> Bill Hybel says, now, I want to say this very strongly to you. If you have had a bad experience of church, let's just imagine that you might have had on occasions a bad experience of church. That can actually be transformed into a passion. And the way Bill Hybels describes it is as the Popeye factor. Do you remember the cartoon Popeye? And you remember Popeye the sailor man would be going along with his girlfriend who was called Olive Oil, yes? And uh, Bluto would come along and take olive oil from him or whatever it might be, yes? Bluto, you remember him? And then Popeye would look on for a while and then he would get out the tin of spinach and he would shout and say, I can't stand it, I can't stand it no more. I have seen enough wooden churches. I have seen enough churches that are a contradiction of the gospel that they proclaim where they are two-dimensional rather than four-dimensional for me to say, I can't stand it. I can't stand it no more. And I hope you say the same thing. And I am determined by the grace of God to see those change and to see churches planted and churches grow, which declare the truth of what it is for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like, you know, the old South Bank show and the picture from uh, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel of the finger of Adam and the finger of God meeting? It's electric! When heaven and earth meet, it is electric, and it should be electric. I don't mean hyped, I mean electric. 
And we should be having the experience and please God, to some degree by His grace, we will experience uh, in this place tonight something of what it is for heaven and earth to meet, because there is no reason why we shouldn't experience it when we're believers in Jesus Christ. I want to read then from Acts chapter 2, 42. You can remain seated for this bit, or 41. And I love this little vignette about the very incipient early church, because it really does tell us what it's like for heaven and earth to meet. I'm going to read it to you just briefly from 41 to the end, the day of Pentecost. So those who received His Word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's got everything. The Word of God, the powerful Word of God by which the very heavens are created, which is vibrant and life-giving in the community of believers. And it's got the Word of God worked out in signs and wonders. God actually doing things in their midst that make them aware of His power and His presence. It's got being, people being saved. It's got fellowship. I loved that bit, actually, that Mr. and Mrs. bit. you know why I loved it? Because they say that the church growth experts, and I don't know all the growth experts, but let's imagine they say this, say there's one thing in common with all churches that grow, and that is they can laugh together. They can enjoy each other's company. It's a terrible thing when a church gets to the place where people can no longer laugh. And I mean in church too. I mean in church too. Fellowship's not something apart from the meeting of believers. It's something which is part of the meeting of believers. And they pray together. And then they do that utterly outrageous and ridiculous thing. They share everything they have in common. And I know People call that all sorts of things, early communism. It wasn't that at all. 
They say, oh, they're expecting Jesus to come back any moment. So should we. They were prepared to share everything in common. And I remember hearing someone preach at an event, one of my own clergy, a curate at the time, actually. And he said, do you know what happened when they shared everything in common? They eradicated poverty in the church overnight. There should be no poverty in the church. There should be no spirit of poverty in the church. There should be a spirit of generosity. In the Irish, they say, Flahulok, throw it around you. Throw it around you. God has plenty more. There's nothing worse than stingy churches. And you know as well as I do that church committees and vestries are full of people who like to micromanage every penny and make it, you risk your life to spend anything. When a church is alive and vibrant and the Spirit of God is alive in it and seen in it, and the unconditional love of God, the generosity of God, the grace of God has been revealed to the church, then the grace of God will be revealed in the church as well. But let's be honest. And Ian was reminding this, us of this from the Old Testament this morning. We are human. We're fallen. There are spots, and there are blemishes, and there are wrinkles, and there are areas where cleansing is needed. At Summer Madness this year, a young lad who's a youth worker in a church came up to me with his video going, and he did one of those Alf McCreary questions, right? If there was one question you'd like to ask God, what is it? And before I had even thought about my answer, I had blurted out something that I felt very bad about. I said, here's my question. Why is it that sometimes people outside the church are nicer than people inside the church? Did you ever ask that question? You look as though you don't. I do. Just sometimes. But when it happens, it's very marked, isn't it? It's very marked. And the truth is that there are people here who have been part of church divisions, conflicts, power struggles, testing, coldness, immorality, apathy, lukewarmness. There are people here tonight unless you are very unusual. And if you are, then I admit it, it only happens in the Church of Ireland. There are people here tonight who have been deeply hurt and damaged at the very place where they should have found grace and unconditional love and generosity. And there are people here too who have damaged who have expected to be able to live whatever way they want to live and not be challenged, or who have said hurtful things to other people in the church and caused, to some degree at least, none of us is guiltless, some of those particular situations. And you know, sorry to quote the Archbishop of Canterbury twice in two talks, but we had him with us recently, and uh, 
He said, do you know the question people keep asking me? He says, how are you going to save the Church of England? And do you know what his answer is when people ask that question? I have no interest whatever in saving the Church of England as an institution. God has promised in Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. But that does not mean any particular denomination or congregation or whatever it may be. If it did, I'm adding this to what he said, if it did, no lampstands would be removed in the book of Revelation. But in many parts of the world, and here in Ireland as well, alongside churches that are flourishing and growing, there are churches where the light is dimming and fading and gradually going to be extinguished, and that is simply how it is. Philip Yancey has written, as you probably know, a follow-up to what's so amazing uh, about grace, and it's called Vanishing Grace. Anything by Philip Yancey, in my view, is worth reading. And I just want to read one or two little things that he says. He uses in uh, What's So Amazing uh, uh, about Grace, he uses that word on grace, doesn't he, that we'd never heard of before Philip Yancey. And when he was writing this book, he read uh, four common complaints about Christians in a magazine published by Christianity Today. Here are their complaints. You don't listen to me. People say that about me too sometimes. You, do, you judge me. Your faith confuses me. You talk about what's wrong instead of making it right. I want you to put up the third little heading. Unconditional love is God's love for the church. Unconditional love is to be expressed in the church, but unconditional love is to be given to the communities around us and to the world around us by the church. We do not exist for ourselves. Philip Yancey says, when I ask, tell me, what is the first love that comes to your… sorry, what is the first word that comes to mind when I say, Christian? Not one time has anyone suggested the word love. He goes on to say, here's a good test of how well we love. Are other people glad to be with us. When people come into your church, I don't even want to use that phraseology, I hate it. Don't come into church. When people come among you as believers, when you're worshiping, do they immediately experience the grace of God? Do they immediately know that this is a place they want to be? Do they receive a welcome? Are they looked up and down to make sure they're the right kind of person? Or is there a welcome on the mat, no matter who they are? I don't want you to misunderstand the next 
story I'm going to tell you, because it could be misunderstood. But I found myself on one occasion, one of the churches that I have oversight of was doing a mission. And I rang the rector of this particular church, and I said to him, I'd love to come along to your mission, but I can only come on Thursday night. He said, okay, that's great. Thursday night, 9.30, and he mentioned the name of a paramilitary pub. He said, great, great. It was out there. And I went into the pub, to the upstairs room, where they were running a concert for a kid who had a serious form of cancer who needed treatment. And it was before smoking had been banned, and I went into this room, and it was stinking with smoke, absolutely stinking with smoke. It was the time when those power to change banners were all around the place. And I went in, and this man said to me, are you the bishop? I said, I am. He said, I want to tell you something, he says. Things are changing here, he says. It says power to change on that church over there. Things are changing here. The church is going to the pub, and the pub's going to the church. It's not bad, is it? And I walked around the room, and this woman came up to me, and she said, that ch- I don't know, she said, where we would be without that church. And her sister was with her. She said, our mother died three days ago. She was buried today from that church. We don't even go to that church. And you know what they did, she says? They made all the sandwiches and cakes. I do not know how we would have survived without that church. And then I was called over to a group of people chatting. There was a chap and two very, can you say busty in New Horizon, two very bosomy women beside him, right? How do you express that in… (laughs) And I was called over and he says, are you the bishop? It's a great line. Are you the bishop? I said, I am. He said, can I ask you a question? I said, you can ask me a question. Can I ask you any question I like? I said, you can ask me any question you like. He said, okay. He said, I'm gay. Am I welcome in your church? Now, hard one to get the right answer for, isn't it? Not really. I said, do you know something? People call themselves all sorts of things. I said, I want to say to you, you are made in the image of God, and I am made in the image of God, and God loves you, and you are welcome. Now, I wanted to add to that, as you would want to do, you are welcome with a bunch of sinners to be discipled in the ways of Jesus Christ. That, to me, is what grace is about. That's what it is for a church that believes in the unconditional love of God. Anybody can come in, right? 
The churches that grow have got quite strong faith at the center. That's important, but they've got porous walls. They've got woolly edges. They've got places where people can explore and come and look and see what we're like and decide whether we're the kind of people they would want to be with or not. It's God's unconditional love for His church, in His church, and through His church. I want to tell you just one other story, and then we'll finish. And when we finish tonight, I'm going to finish in a different way. I'm going to finish with the opportunity for any of you who want to come forward, and I'm going to ask Bishop Ben to be at one side and myself to be at the other, and we are going to offer anointing, just giving you a heads up, anointing. Just no words very much. If you want prayer ministry afterwards, then you can go into the tent, but anointing for different things. Anointing that we would have the same love for the church as Jesus has if we've grown cold about the church. Or anointing that if we've been hurt by the church, we would be healed of those hurts and be able to move forward or anointing that God would place a new vision and a new desire and a new possibility in our hearts of how we can see the gospel lived out in our community through the church. And here's the last story. I was invited, along with Bishop Macarivi, the local Roman Catholic bishop, to the launch of a film in uh, the Jethro Center in Lurgan. And the two of us arrived at the door at the same time and looked at each other and weren't sure what it was we were going to. And we got in, and it was a film that some of you may have seen. It was a group of people from around Lurgan, which, as you know, Craig Avon, one of the most divided parts of this province. And they had been taken to an Amish community to discover how they exercised forgiveness. And in this film, there's a little story. It's a very tragic story of a man who's driving along in a truck and falls asleep at the wheel and discovers smash an Amish buggy has been in front of his truck and he's been asleep. And he finds a little girl of 12 dead in front of his truck. The parents discover, obviously, their daughter has died. And you know what the first thing is they did? They went round, they knocked on his door, and they said, we forgive you. And then he went to the funeral of the little girl, and all her school friends lined up and shook his hand and said, one by one, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. Do you know what I thought? They've learned that. They've learned that off by heart. That's what I thought. 
And then the Lord corrected me. He said, did Jesus not ask us to learn that off by heart? In the Lord's Prayer, did he not even emphasize it to explain it, that if we don't forgive others, we're not forgiving ourselves? And how have we managed, and we'll come on to this in a day or two, how have we managed in this godly province of ours to learn the opposite off by heart so often? And Philip Yancey so often emphasizes there is no logic to forgiveness. There's absolutely no logic to forgiveness except the logic of the Spirit of God. We need to find ways of graceful churches possessed by the grace of God who in Christ has poured that grace out on us, making that grace known in the communities in which we live. There is nothing more powerful than that. Love, as it says, I think in the wee brochure, love without strings. Love which creates a bit of a mess at times. Doesn't leave our churches as tidy as they used to be. It doesn't leave them as institutionalized as they used to be. Thank the Lord for that. But it leaves them as real places of the powerful, living, transforming presence of the Lord. I'm going to ask the music group to come up and uh, we'll start to sing. And as we start to sing, you might like to think, what aspect of all of that do I want God's anointing for in my life? And Ben and I don't mind if we're here all night, but there's no pressure. There's no pressure. If it's not helpful to you, just stay in your seat or go for ministry or have a cup of tea or whatever. We're just going to stand at the two ends of these two main aisles here, these two here. And all we will do is simply say, I anoint you with oil in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and you receive that anointing, whether it's that you want the love of God in your heart for the church, whether you want the forgiveness of God or the healing of God for hurts that have happened in the church and are debilitating you, or whether you want the Spirit of God to give you a new vision of what's possible. But let's bow our heads in prayer even before we sing. Just ask the Spirit of God to speak to you. Speak to you about what He wants you to receive tonight. I imagine there are none of us who don't need one of those things and especially church leaders. The God who anoints us is gracious, merciful, full of steadfast love. He possesses His church.
He remains faithful to his church. And you and I have the privilege of being born again into his family.